Good morning, guys. Try it again. Good morning, guys. Happy Easter. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take that. Hey, welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and um, thank you for joining us on this Easter morning. If you're a guest with us, uh, special thanks for taking this morning to join us. Um, If you are a first-time guest, be sure to visit our connection point on your way out. We have a gift for you there. We would love to just honor you for uh, coming and and hanging out with us this morning. We are going to be opening our Bibles and studying, so grab your Bibles, and let's go to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, look on the floor around you. There should be a Bible there. Go ahead and grab one of those. And uh, we're going to John chapter 11 in our Bibles. That's page 897. If you don't have a Bible, um, it would be our privilege to give you that one off of, uh, off of our floor. Uh, that didn't sound right, but that's where it comes from. But we would love to put the Word of God into your hands so that you can read it and study it and engage it over the course of the week. So it would be our privilege um, to give that to you if you don't have one. All right, we're going to John chapter 11. Now, here's the thing. I, I, we're going to be talking about Lazarus a little bit this morning. And I preached, some of you remember, it wasn't very long ago, I preached on this passage and what Jesus meant when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, and, and really just the beautiful tension that comes out of that story. I'm not going to unpack those same themes this morning, uh, but I'm going to encourage you, if you're new here or if you want to dig into that more, we have our past messages um, posted on our website. And uh, on our iTunes podcast, you can always find those messages there. So you can go back. This morning, we're going to be reading the essential bits and then kind of uh, talking about that. So we're going to be starting in verse 1. You can ignore the verses up on the screen as usual. Um, All right. So John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jump down to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Drop down to verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Drop down to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Drop down to verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. The word of the Lord. All right, you guys, welcome to Trailhead and happy Resurrection Day. Um, we gathered in this room on Friday night to celebrate Good Friday. It was a service in which we meditated on uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And Good Friday is, man, a heavy, heavy day because that's the day we, we ultimately look at Jesus crucified, right? And, and meditate on, on what that means for us. And, and today... We get to celebrate the resurrection. Today we get to celebrate what makes Good Friday good, right? What makes the crucifixion of Christ worth celebrating is the resurrection of Christ. He did not stay in the tomb. He didn't stay dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And this is really, really good news for a lot of reasons. But one of the best reasons is that it gives us the courage to tell ourselves the truth about ourselves. It gives us the courage to tell ourselves the truth about our lives. See, most of us, I think, honestly, really think that all we need to do is kind of rearrange the furniture of our lives um, for us to be okay. And we know that no matter how much we rearrange the furniture, it's still the same furniture and still the same room. But 
that doesn't stop us from, from still working on it, right? If I can just solve a few problems, if I can just get rid of this and get a little more of this, and if I could just grow into this and stop doing that, then I'll get this whole living thing figured out. Then, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be free. Then I'll have what I'm currently lacking. And so we keep rearranging the furniture. And we keep ending up with the same result. Right? The resurrection gives us the courage to actually look at the reality of our lives. Here's the thing. I think most of us spend our lives, most of our lives, and most of our resources trying to undo the second law of thermodynamics. And some of you are like, Steve, I haven't been in, college, I mean, in science since, since I was like in high school. I get it, all right? So, so here's the thing. At the heart of the second law of thermodynamics is this concept called entropy, which very simply th- means that things move toward a state of disorder, right? Things tend to decay, right? Um, things tend to get less organized. Anybody who's ever cleaned their house knows this, right? Have you ever been able to just clean your house and say, there we are, my house is clean forever, right? It doesn't happen, right? You build something and eventually it falls apart. You make something and it deteriorates, right? Things fall apart. Things decay, including us. And we spend most of our lives fighting this law. If we could just fix these things, then we'd be okay. And I think there are three areas specifically that we focus on. Areas of time, money, and capacity. Time, like, like if I could just stop the aging process, right? How much of our energy do we spend trying to stop or reverse the aging process in our lives, right? The newest product, the newest exercise, uh, the newest whatever, right? I mean, we just, we are, we are driven to try to reverse the effects of entropy on our bodies. Money, right? (laughs) Entropy plays havoc with our pocketbooks. No matter how much we make, it seems like our expenses are always a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? And so we're constantly trying to get more and more resources. Capacity, and by capacity, I mean personal capacity, beauty, strength, intellect, right? If, if I could just keep what I have and get a little more, if I could just grow in my intelligence and in my capacity and my, here's the thing, we, we fight to make more time. We dry, dream of finding a source of unlimited wealth, We long to find the fountain of youth, whether it's diet or exercise or something even better that doesn't require any sacrifice at all, right? This weird cosmetic thing you smear all over you, whatever, right? We're just looking for the fountain of youth to look younger, to be fitter, to grow smarter. You guys, can we just admit something? If we could extend our lives and increase our resources, and even reverse aging, the reality is we would simply prolong our suffering. Because no matter how effectively we solve these problems, we still take us with us. No matter how effectively you reverse the aging, no matter how effectively you can accumulate wealth, no matter how effectively you can increase personal capacity, you still take you with you. Here's the thing, you guys. We don't, we don't need longer lives. We need new lives. We don't need longer lives. We need new hearts. We don't just need to rearrange the furniture of our lives. We need resurrection. But not just any resurrection. We need Christ's resurrection. Now, since it is Easter, I want to take a little bit of time um, on this day of of Jesus' resurrection um, and pause and consider Him before we talk about how it applies to us. Okay, um, and so what I want to do is I want to put a, a scripture passage on the screen and just take a look and consider why is the resurrection important and in fact why is it essential. This is Romans chapter four, verses twenty four and twenty five. 
It says this, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, a lot of complex ideas and clearly a complex sentence, right? The syntax here is crazy. Three key ideas that I want to focus on. The first is this, that he was delivered up for our trespasses. So simple question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus die? And the reality is, it's because of this. Every single one of us fits here. Every single one of us is uh, somebody filled with trespasses. I mean, you just think about the simple Ten Commandments, not, not, not even the complete law uh, revealed in the Old Testament, the simple Ten Commandments. Who in this room hasn't broken every one of them in spirit, if not in behavior? Because Jesus said, it's not good enough not to murder, you can't hate. And you can't utter a word of hatred. It's not good enough simply not to commit adultery. You can't lust, right? We have all, either in spirit or behavior, violated the law of God. And you're like, Steve, I'm a guest here, man. I'm, I'm visiting. I don't even believe in that stuff. I don't even believe in the Ten Commandments. That's fine. You know you fit here as well, though, because you can't even keep your own commandments. Whatever personal expectations you've got for, for how you're supposed to live or who you're supposed to be, if you're honest with yourself, you don't live up to it. You violate your own expectations on a regular basis. None of us measure up, and we all know it. And we all deal with the guilt of not being who we know we're supposed to be. And of course, it is compounded when we realize that we are accountable to a holy God. It's not simply about personal growth or personal fulfillment or or personal acceptance. It is, in fact, about coming before a holy and righteous God and being held to account for who we are and how we have behaved. Here's the thing. There's a huge business in our culture ultimately trying to help people deal with this very problem, convincing them to ignore their conscience or to have self-affirmations that redirect them away from their feelings of guilt. There's all this stuff. Here's the thing. They don't deal with the core issue, and the core issue is this. We're all sinners. We have violated our relationship with God. We have committed cosmic treason. We have rejected God and tried to be God. We have rejected God's glory and tried to live for our own glory. We have not lived for the kingdom of God. We have sought to establish our own kingdoms and our own glory and our own name, and we're really making a mess of it. So this is God's solution for our problem. This is God's solution for our problem. We have trespassed God's law. We have offended a holy, righteous God. We have committed cosmic treason. His solution was to deliver up His holy Son for our transgression. There was a righteous response to our rebellion. And God in His love absorbed our offense. Instead of growing distant or angry or vindictive, instead of crushing us because of our choices, he instead offered himself in our place as a supreme act of love. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He became our substitute in judgment. He took our place and God gave him what we deserved. And he took our death. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died, not for his sin, but for ours. Now, the second point that comes out of this verse is this, that he was raised for our justification. So he was delivered up for our transgression, but he was raised for our justification. Now, justification is is one of those $10 theological words. And what it means is to be declared right. It's a legal term. So if you were to come into a courtroom, you would be seeking justification. Anybody who's in a courtroom is ultimately seeking that. Uh, Whatever side you're on, what you want to be is declared right in your position, in your standing, not guilty, not owing, not condemned, but declared right. That's justification, right? He was raised so that we could be declared right. Here's the thing, since he took the penalty of our sin, which was death, if he hadn't risen from the grave, we could never be justified because it would mean the payment was not complete. When Jesus rose from the grave, it proved that God was satisfied in regard to our sin, all of it. 
past, present, future. God was satisfied. And we know that because Jesus entered into our death and then rose again in new life. So when he was raised, it proved that the payment was complete. His resurrection proved that I could be declared right. That in all of my flaws and all of my brokenness and all of my rebellion, God looked at me and would say, you are justified. Not because of your record, but because of Christ's. The third thing that we see here is that this righteousness or this rightness before God is counted to us as believers. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe. So that rightness is, is counted to us, which is a, an actuarial term. It means that it is, it is attributed to our account. It is imputed to us. It is given to us in a legal sense, right? It is counted to us when we believe in Jesus. When we stop trusting in our own works and start trusting in His. When we stop trusting in our own record and rest in His. When we see that He was God's salvation plan that he was God's rescue plan. He was God's hero. And we stopped trying to save ourselves. We stopped trying to fix ourselves. We stopped trying to be the hero of our own stories and instead believe in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we have an alien righteousness accounted to our account. I am clothed in the resurrected Christ as a believer in Jesus. All of his obedience is now my obedience. All of his righteousness is now my righteousness. I do not stand based on my obedience, my, my religion, my, my trying to obey rules or to measure up. I stand before God purely in grace. As a free gift from God, I stand in the righteousness of Christ. And that comes to me when I believe in Jesus. So Christ's resurrection is absolutely essential to our understanding of his mission. If Christ was not raised from the dead, he was not successful in his mission, and God's rescue plan has failed. It is absolutely necessary. We celebrate the cross because there's an empty tomb. We celebrate the death of Jesus, not because we love to see him suffering, but because we know he suffered for us in our place. He took the penalty we deserved in a supreme act of love, and that melts our hearts. And when we look at the empty tomb, we celebrate the security of a risen Savior, a Savior who calls us by name and knows us, a Savior who gives us His righteousness, not based on our merit or our works, based completely on His, as we simply believe in him, and we are invited into his victory. So here's the thing. I know that some of you may be guests, and I know some of you may be struggling with this whole thing of, of resurrection. Um, we, don't, we don't get to see every day people being raised from the dead. I think most people don't, right? You see anybody raised from the dead lately? Yeah, so here's the thing. If you, if you have a trouble believing this, <laughs> you know, if you were a guest here, and you're like, well, it's Easter. I'll go to church with you. And you're like, I just don't know about that whole rising from the dead thing. I get it, all right? It's crazy, I'd be stupid to say it wasn't, right? I mean, it really is. It's, it is non-intuitive. There's nothing about my experience that would lead me to believe, oh yeah, of course Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't happen, right? Unless it did. You guys, there are compelling reasons to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Compelling reasons. And I don't have time this morning, nor is it my purpose to give a full apologetic for the risen Savior and why we believe Jesus was, was raised from the dead, but I am going to tell you there are compelling reasons, and I'm going to tell you to dig in. Here's the thing. If you were to sit down with me and say, Steve, if you can prove to me that Jesus was raised from the dead, I'll believe in Jesus. I'm going to have a really hard time because here's the thing. We can't prove anything from history. Anything. Right? I cannot prove to you that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. I can't do it. Right? What can I do? I can show you compelling evidence. I can show you evidence that has to be explained one way or another. And when all that evidence comes together to actually support that that actually happened, it is logical and reasonable to believe that it did. And if we say it didn't, we have to come up with an alternative explanation as to why those things happened. 
right? There were consequences that occurred when, when Columbus sailed across the Atlantic. There were consequences that occurred as, as that led to a series of events that, that ultimately have led to us sitting here today. And if you don't believe he did it, you have to come up with an alternative theory. You have to come up with a way of explaining the consequences, the things that we see that we believe actually resulted from those, those happenings. Here's the thing. It's the same thing with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus has compelling evidence, stuff that has to be explained whether you believe it or not. I mean, let me just throw a few things out there to you. Christianity exploded in growth. Nobody disputes this. It exploded in growth in the very place at the very time Jesus rose from the dead. Not a not hundred years later, not a not thousand miles away. It wasn't like somebody discovered these documents at some later time and there was a revival of... It exploded in the very place at the very time that it took place. We also know that the primary apologetic of the New Testament church was this. Go talk to the eyewitnesses. That was their primary apologetic. Nowhere in the New Testament do they say, go look at the empty tomb. You know why? Because an empty tomb doesn't prove anything, right? They said, they said, there are 500 eyewitnesses, and here's a few names. Go talk to them. That, that's right in our text. It exploded in the very time, at the very place. The primary apologetic was, in fact, the eyewitnesses themselves. And then you have to explain what happened with the disciples, right? These 12 guys, when we read through the, the Gospels, they're anything but, but incredible, right? I mean, seriously, they're bumbling, they're foolish, they're arguing about who's the greatest, they're always getting ahead of Jesus and having to be corrected, or they're dragging behind and he has to drag them along. I mean, they're really not portrayed as, as these guys of incredible strength or intelligence. It really is a brutally honest look at people very much like you and me, just foolish people that are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what happens, though. After the resurrection of Christ, those people are suddenly transformed into the 12 apostles. They become the leaders of the church, and every single one of them dies a martyr's death. Every single one of them dies for this testimony. Convinced that there was a resurrection, convinced that there was a better life waiting for them, they were more than happy to be crucified upside down, or to be stoned, or to be persecuted. You have to find a way to explain that kind of behavior. What explains that sudden transformation of the 12 disciples to the 12 apostles, men who were so fully convinced that they, every single one of them laid down their life in testimony for the truth? Here's, I could go on, but I'm going to stop there. Here's the thing. There is evidence that has to be explained. And what I'm going to encourage you to do, if, you don't, if you're struggling with this, if you're not sure, you need to be willing to do some heavy lifting. It's not good enough to say, well, I watched a YouTube video and they made fun of the resurrection, so therefore I don't believe in it. All right? This is a little bit too important for that. This is worth digging in. And there are scholarly, intelligent resources that we can help you dig into. And we'll be happy to walk with you to help you ask the right questions and dig into the right information and just help you process this stuff. We're happy to help you with the process, but ultimately it is on you. So I encourage you to do that. Here's the thing. In Christ's resurrection, he solved our greatest problem and he gave us our greatest blessing. Believers, I think we often miss the point of the resurrection, though. We take the resurrection as a promise of a glorious future, which it is, right? Because Jesus was raised from the dead, there's a promise that we also will be raised from the dead and that we will enter into the, into the kingdom in new bodies, right? There is a promise of a glorious by and by, what we miss is that in this, there's also a promise of new life in the gritty here and now. But the resurrection isn't just about someday in the future. It's about right now. So think about Lazarus for a minute to help us illustrate. The raising of Lazarus was a pretty good day. You agree? Kind of cool day. Would you have liked to have been Mary or Martha and get your brother back? How much better to be Lazarus? You know what I'm saying? That's a good day right? I'm dead and I'm, I'm alive. Because Lazarus had a problem and it was a problem he couldn't solve. But here's what I want to unpack and tell you. The event was deceptively joyful. And honestly, if it stood alone, it would be a sad chapter 
in a story of great tragedy. So think about it. Of course, Lazarus had a problem he couldn't solve. He was, he was dead. <laughs> a little bit worse than your problems today, right? Whatever your problems are, you're here breathing. You're alive, right? He was out, like dead, right? He was beyond his ability. Uh, pretty helpless. Um, Mary and Martha were helpless. They had already buried him. He'd been in the grave for four days, which meant the, the decay process had already begun, right? Lazarus had left behind a family that he had loved. He had left behind a community that loved him. He had left behind all of the potential and promise of his life. And he was helpless. And then Jesus shows up, as he does. He said some pretty profound things that confused some people, as he usually did. And then he did something miraculous, which he also often did. He stands in front of the tombs, like, moved rock. They're like, what? Yeah, roll it out of the way. Okay. Then he's like, Lazarus, hey, come on out. And here he comes, and I love it. He's like hopping out because he's still in his grave clothes, which meant that his legs and his arms were tightly wrapped. He still had the face. So he's hopping out, and Jesus is like, he's alive now, guys. Un, un, you know, take him off. You know, he's, he's got to breathe, right? Take off his grave clothes and let him go, right? So, so Lazarus comes hopping out. They take off the grave clothes. Everybody's crying. Everybody's happy. Big hugs. Large party. Good day. Good day. One of the best, Right? Pretty awesome. But here's the thing, you guys. Lazarus was raised from the dead to die all over again. He got sick again. He hurt again. I have no doubt that that after he came back from the dead, there was probably a season where, where nothing bothered him. You know what I'm saying? Like, like all the heavy traffic around Jerusalem, he's stuck. And he's like, you know what? I was dead, and now I'm alive. Not a big deal, right? I'll wait. I'm not all flustered and angry, right? Like when you get raised from the dead, it gives you perspective on life, right? It gives you perspective on problems. The big things that used to really annoy you probably don't annoy you as much, right? The little things that, that used to annoy you, they aren't even on the radar, right? Because you were dead, and now you're alive, right? But you guys, he was human, just like you and me, and you know exactly what happened because we've gone through the same thing. When we get great news that we think is going to be transformative and will never come down off of the mountain, it made us so happy. But here's what ends up happening is life brings its same frustrations. Those same disappointed dreams that he had before he was raised from the dead are still there those same hurtful relationships that were so difficult to navigate are still there. All of his frustrations are still there. See, coming back from the dead, I'm sure, has a way of changing your perspective on life. But while it may change your perspective for a while, it doesn't actually change your life or your desires in it. He was still the same old Lazarus with the same limitations, the same annoying behaviors, the same lusts, the same desires, the same frustrations. You know why? Because he didn't just need his body raised from the dead. He needed his heart raised from the dead. See, even more than he needed to be raised from the dead, he needed Jesus to be raised from the dead. Because without that, his resurrection was just one more sad chapter in a tragic story. It simply prolonged the inevitable and prolonged the suffering in it. See, Christ's resurrection not only promises us a wonderful future, which it does, but it promises us a better present. It promises to free us in beautiful ways because in the resurrection of Christ, we actually have the resurrection of our hearts. It doesn't just promise the future resurrection of our bodies. It promises the unleashing of God's blessing in our hearts now. Here's the thing, because we are sinners, 
by nature, meaning that we were actually born with that brokenness within us. We inherited it from our first father, but also by choice. We have acted out on it in multiple ways in our lives. We are alienated from God, right? God is the source of life. And here's what I want you to hear. Whatever problem you're having, this is at the heart of it. Whatever frustration you're having, whatever disappointment you're having, whatever area of personal like limitation you're facing, whatever, wherever you're deeply disappointed in yourself, at the heart of every problem is this, because this is the root of every problem. Those are the fruit. This is the root. You are alienated from God, and God is the creator, but also the source of life. Here's the thing. We weren't created by a distant, impersonal God to just live out our lives, right? God didn't just create us as a distant, impersonal God and say, now go live your lives, figure this thing out, good luck. God is intensely personal. He is a personal God. And he was created us out of that personality for life and achievement and joy in relationship with him. What that means is that we were designed to have our needs, our relational, deep personal needs met first in our relationship with Him and then secondly in our relationships with one another. We were created to find our deepest needs met in our Creator. And then out of the overflow of His goodness, out of the overflow of His character, out of the overflow of who He is, we were to simply share the generosity that God had shared with us. We were designed for community, not competition which most of our relationships right now are about competition, limited resources, limited time, limited attention. We're fighting for more. See, in God's economy, there's an unlimited supply of love and joy and grace. We were designed to to drink of that and then operate out of that. We were designed to have our deepest needs met first in God. Since our sin has alienated alienated us from God and separated us from God, our Creator, what we have done is we have turned to the creation to meet those deep needs. See, the needs don't go away. That's why they're called needs, (laughs) right? Wants. Wants are, are fluctuating. Needs don't, right? Our needs didn't go away. They simply turned into appetites that had to be fed, in a new way. Since we were now alienated from God and our relationship with God, those appetites start feeding on things that aren't God, seeking to be fulfilled. You guys, why do we pursue ageless beauty? Why are we so consumed with exercise and the right cosmetics and getting rid of the crow's feet and and, and obsessing? Why? Because we have a deep need for acceptance and love. Why do we pursue increased intelligence? Why do we compete for greater accolades? Why are we always pursuing the next success? Why are we not satisfied? Because we have a deep need for significance and purpose. Why do we fight to have enough finances saved to live in better neighborhoods? Why do we fight to keep all of our ducks in a row? Why are we so obsessed that our kids go to the right schools and listen to the right music and, and are on the right teams? And, and why, are, why are we so obsessed to make sure that they're, they're not in the wrong places? Why? Because we have a deep need for security. Why do we feel anxious every time we finish binge-watching a new TV show on Netflix, Right? You find this incredible show. It's so engaging and constantly. And then you watch it and then it's over. It's like, ah, what's next? Why? Why does that create anxiety for us? Why, when we get the very thing we've been hoping to get, after we've been working for it and hoping for it, and we finally get it, why is there always an undercurrent of melancholy? Knowing that we finally got and we're no longer going to hope knowing that there is impending disappointment. Why? Because we have a deep need for joy. And what ends up happening with all of these deep needs, these appetites that were designed to be fed in God, by God, we try to feed them with things that aren't God. We turn to the creation instead of the creator. And we say to those things, you will be my God. You will feed me as only God can feed me. And that is why most of us are living quiet lives of desperation. 
We don't want to admit it. We don't want to look at it because it is horrible when it is truly exposed. But we keep pursuing things and chasing things and feeding on things that cannot satisfy and will not deliver. And as soon as we get it, we turn around and pursue something else. Why? Because it is too crushing of a weight to admit that we will never achieve. We will never arrive. We have an itch that will never be scratched. You guys, this is why we don't just need a longer life. A longer life where we are feasting on the wrong things is just a longer period of suffering. We don't just need more resources, right? If we had unlimited money, you know what would happen? Our deeper pockets would simply allow us to distract ourselves for longer from that quiet misery that undercuts our lives. Money would allow us to entertain ourselves, distract ourselves, give ourselves temporary pleasures, and all it would do in the end is distract us from what we know to be true. You guys, there is more. We were created for better. Followers of Christ do not settle for less. You guys, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead so that you could live quiet lives of desperation. Jesus was not raised from the dead so that you could someday go to heaven and be this angelic being. He was raised from the dead so you could be truly human. Right here, right now. So that you could be what you were created to be. Truly human. There will be a day when we are also raised like Christ, when these bodies will be replaced with, with new resurrected bodies. Those redeemed bodies will live in a new kingdom and a, a new earth, and, and, and we will fully experience, fully be redeemed and experience the full benefit of Christ's resurrection at that time. But we don't have to wait until then to start reaping the benefit of Christ's resurrection in our lives. We can push by faith into that life now. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at four key areas where God meets us, where God feeds us in ways that, that, that honestly, we all have a hard time believing. These are four truths about God that we have forgotten in our sin or have believed lies about God. Four key truths that, that ultimately we can embrace as followers of Christ. And once again, have our appetites fed by God instead of by the things God has created. Instead of abusing the gifts of God to try to be God, we will be free to actually enjoy the gifts of God because we'll be feeding on God. Now, these four things are deceptively simple. I'm going to warn you. They are deceptively simple. Here's the four things, and we're going to be covering these over the next four weeks. The first is this. God is gracious. So I don't have to hide. Second is this, God is good. So I can be truly satisfied and content. The third is this, God is great. So I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to earn my worth. And the fourth is this, God is glorious. So I don't have, <laughs> I mix that up. God is glorious, so I don't have to prove myself. God is great, so I don't have to live in fear. It undercuts anxiety. These truths, you guys, here's the thing. They're four simple statements, and they are deceptively simple. I can tell you that these truths have been transformative in my life. Like, they've really impacted my life. They have really helped me to move into freedom. And as we study them, I really trust they're going to help us as a community to move into the beauty of feasting on the goodness of God, of being freed by these truths instead of enslaved by the lies so that we are no longer looking to things that can't fulfill. We are actually growing by feeding on the one who does. So I invite you back over the next four weeks as we dig into these. Now, as we wrap up today, we offer a unique chance to apply today's message. Um, we're going to be celebrating some baptisms. Baptisms are always a big event. We absolutely love doing baptisms. And, um, and this morning, we are going to have um, a baptism. A baptism is a celebration of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? It is a celebration of new life. 
what we do is we take somebody and we dip them under the water. And then we take them out. Okay? I mean, think about it. Going into the water is, is symbolic of being united with Christ in his death. Right? If I hold you long enough, you'll die. Okay? I won't. I'll take you back out. Okay? And as I bring you out of the water, it is symbolic of you rising in new life. Right? So it is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's symbolic of the fact that because you have faith in him, his death was your death and his resurrection is your life. Right? And then we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which in its essence means this is your renaming ceremony. If somebody believes in Jesus, they are given a new name. They're no longer who they were. They are who God has declared them to be. And they are now the, the, being baptized in the name of the Father, which speaks of our sonship, in the name of the Son, which speaks of our being co-heirs with Christ, receiving all the full benefit of who He is and what He's done, and baptized in the name of the Spirit, which means we're baptized into life Himself and into the mission and movement of life to move out and glorify God and, and ultimately move toward good. So, so it, is a, it is a celebration, right? Baptism doesn't actually do these things. It's a celebration of those things. So that's our announcement. We have a baptism, and I'm going to encourage you to stick around right after the service and help us celebrate. But I also want to give you an invitation. Hmm. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you can get baptized. You're like, what? Like, join a class? No. Like today. Like, you came here dry and you can go home wet. Seriously, you think I'm joking. I'm really not. Um, Here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, I'm giving you the opportunity to follow Christ in obedience. Jesus said, go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those were his last marching orders he gave to his disciples as they went out into the world. And and in fact, those are the same marching orders given to us today. And here's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Somebody believes in Jesus, and then their first act of obedience is to be discipled. I mean, excuse me, to be baptized. Right? So it's, a, it's an expression of their discipleship. I'm going to follow God. And, and Jesus said to do this thing, so I'm going to do this thing. Right? So it's, it's, it's an act of obedience to Jesus. It's an act of discipleship where you're simply following him um, instead of trying to lead him. It's about obeying him, saying, all right, you have authority over my life. You've done this for me, and I celebrate it with you. And here's the thing, man. It's your renaming ceremony. <laughs> Why would you want to come to your own party? Right? I mean, this is, this is Jesus basically saying, man, I want you to do this thing, and it's going to celebrate the fact that you're no longer who you were. You're no longer defined by what you've done or what's been done to you. You are defined by who I am and what I've done for you. You have a new name. So I encourage you, if you are a believer in Jesus and you have not been baptized, here's your chance, man. Here's your chance. It's a simple act of obedience. Now, I know what's going to go on right now. If you're that person, there's a lot of stuff going on in your head right now. And part of you is saying, shut up, Steve. And I get that. Here's the thing. I know the questions. You're thinking, man, it's just not that important. It's just not that important. You keep telling yourself over and over, it's just not that important. Really, who's it not important to? You or Jesus? Because it seems to be pretty important to Jesus because he pretty much commanded it, right? He said, go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you're not the one who gets to decide how important it is right? It's not your job to lead Jesus. It's your job to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? You're like, yeah, but I've been a believer for like 22 years, man. I think there's an expiration date on this thing, you know? So it's probably too late for me. No, there's really not, right? It doesn't expire. It doesn't matter if you came, became a believer this morning or you've been a believer for 22 years. If you haven't been baptized as a follower, the command is still um, authoritative. The invitation is still valid. Come and be baptized. Some of you may be thinking, you know what, though? I, I maybe just came to faith in Christ, but I was sprinkled when I was a child, and I want to honor my parents. Well, here's the thing. I, I want to be careful with this, but I'm going to give you my personal opinion. It's this. Every time you see baptism in the New Testament, first of all, it is by immersion. The word baptizo literally means to immerse. It's the symbolism of being um, buried in Christ's death and raised in His resurrection. Secondly, it always comes after faith. Every time we see it in the New Testament, man, people believe in the gospel and then they are baptized, right? Baptism isn't preemptive to faith. It is responsive to faith. It's a celebration of faith. And, and so we believe that, that to honor God, we follow in baptism. 
And here's the thing, when, you're, when you were sprinkled as an infant, what your parents were saying is, I commit this child to God. I want this child to respond to God, to love God, to grow in faith to God. And what better way to honor that intention than to actually follow your convictions? What better way to honor their intentions than to actually be baptized in obedience to God, to actually act in that faith and to be baptized? Some of you are thinking, well, Steve, I'm not sure I want to be a member here. I'm not sure I want you to be a member here either, Okay. This isn't about membership at Trailhead Church. You don't have to be a member at Trailhead to be baptized. You just have to be a believer in Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus, but you have not been baptized, you have the opportunity here this morning to respond to that and be baptized. So what's keeping you back? What's keeping you back? Really, if you, if you are a believer in Jesus and you haven't been dunked, what's keeping you back this morning? Are you afraid of what people will think? Because that's totally the wrong question. Your question shouldn't be, what will people think? Your question should be, how do I honor the God that saved me? How do I obey the Savior who leads me, right? It's not about fearing man. It's about honoring Christ, right? You're like, man, it's too sudden, man. You just threw this at me. Don't I have to be trained? Yeah, for what? You're going to get dunked, right? There's really not much you do, right? If you have a credible profession of faith, if you've really believed in Jesus, God's already done all the work. There's really nothing for you to be trained in other than the fact that you respond in faith and you are baptized in his name, right? Yeah, but I need to pray about it, Steve. Really? That's kind of a spiritual way to disobey, don't you think? Right? When Jesus says, do this thing, I don't think you're like, oh, Jesus, yeah, let me go pray about that. Who are you going to pray to, Jesus? Who already told you to go do it? Right? Yeah, but I got to get my life together, man. You don't know what I did last night. Baptism is not a celebration of you getting your life together for God. It's a celebration of what God has done to reclaim your life and to raise you from the dead. When you get baptized, this isn't about you committing yourself to moral behavior or a celebration of your moral behavior. It is a celebration of the fact that God, the God of the universe, sent his son to die and rise again for you so that you could be freed from your record and you could stand in his. Yeah, but Steve, I didn't come dressed. I know. We got shirts. We got sweats and shorts. We got you covered. I've got all sizes. Lots of fancy colors, right? All dark. Don't worry. It's it's good. Yeah, but what about my underwear? Don't worry. We got you covered. We won't make you walk out with wet underwear. We even have you covered there. All right. Are you catching me? Like we've thought through the logistics of this thing. We have tried to make it as absolutely as easy as possible for you to respond and simply act in faith. Listen, you guys, it's a simple command. Believe and be baptized. And I'm not trying to twist your arm much, right? Just trying to be strongly persuasive. That's what I do. Um, But I'm encouraging you, right? If you want to be baptized, if you've believed in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, man, man, don't, don't stay away from your party. I'm going to encourage you. Um, Here's the thing. We're going to, we're going to, close us up and, and we're going to do a blessing and, and then we're going to share communion together. And, and after we have communion, if you, want to, if you want to be baptized this morning, I'm going to ask you to go speak to our leaders. Okay, we got some people right over here. We got Ian and Corinne um, right over here who will help facilitate and equip you, right? And so they're going to talk to you a little bit about your faith. We want to make sure that, that people really understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then we're going to help you with the logistics to make sure that you're covered on that. Um, but go ahead and talk to them um, after communion if you would like to be baptized this morning, right? This is your party. This is your party. Don't skip it, right? Don't skip it. All right, you guys, there are worship response cards in your bulletin. If you have prayer requests, please fill those out. If you're a guest with us this morning, let us know you were here. You can drop those in the response boxes by the door or up here at the front um, after service or during communion. We would love to pray with you and love to pray for you. Um, But let us know you were here. And as we wrap up, normally what we do at this point is we have response questions that kind of lead into just a a short period of of response where we listen and pray and let God speak to our hearts. We're going to mix things up a little bit this morning. I'm going to actually speak a blessing over you. We do this occasionally. It's a little bit weird, but I don't care um, because I think it's awesome. And so um, I'm going to speak a blessing over you. And the way we do that here is, is... um, when I was when I had the opportunity about a year and a half to go to Kyrgyzstan um, and and visit um, some people on the ground there that were sharing the gospel of Jesus with with a very foreign culture with people that had never heard of Christ, 
man, I was, it was a beautiful experience. And one of the things that I really loved is every meal, they would end it with this, this blessing ceremony. And I'm like, man, I, I want to adapt that because that's beautiful. And, and so what we do is we cup our hands, okay, like this. Nice and tight. You don't want to lose any of it. Because what's going to happen is I speak the blessing over you. This is your way to catch it, okay? This is like a a physical symbol, right? You're just saying, this is mine. I don't want to lose it, right? And and so you're listening, and and you're you're saying, this is is mine. And I'm going to speak the blessing over you. And and then as we end the blessing, what I'll say is, is, and all God's people said, and that's your cue, what we're going to do is we're going to wash that blessing over us, okay? And, And we're going to say, amen, all together. Now, the word amen you guys know that comes at the end of a prayer, right? That's, no, that's not just random syllables. It's a word that literally means let it be or it is true for me, right? When you say amen at the end of a prayer, what you're saying is, God, let this be, right? Let this be true for me. So as we take this and say amen at the end of the blessing, what we're saying is this is true of me. By faith, I receive this blessing. Now, if you're, if, you're, if you're not a believer or you just think this is too weird, totally cool. You can just sit there, put your hands in your lap, and, and, um, and enjoy this, all right? Um, but for those of you who are followers of Christ, cup your hands. Here you go. And, and, and I want to read this verse, the verse that we talked about earlier. And I'm just going to unpack it a little bit for you, okay? It says this, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Believer in Christ, listen to this. What this means is that you are not defined by what you've done. You are not defined by what's been done to you. You are not forever marked by your guilt or your shame. It has been removed and taken permanently away from you by Christ. And instead, you are, as you sit here this morning, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he sees his son. When God looks at you, he does not look with disapproval. He does not look waiting for you to get your act together. He does not look at you with anger or disdain or, or, or disinterest. He looks at you with longing and with love because you are clothed in the very righteousness of his beloved son in whom all of God's delight rests. You are at the heart of God's delight. And it is counted to you. It is gifted to you. God's done it all. And as you sit here this morning, you have received it all. Your greatest problem has already been solved. Your greatest blessing has already been given. Believe it. By faith. And all God's people said, amen.